good to see everybody. In Egypt, at the time of the Exodus, before that, the Hyksos had come in and invaded invaded Egypt and had, uh, I guess the best way to say it was be coexisted with the Egyptian 16th and 17th dynasties. So they were there for quite some time and finally they were run out and the 18th dynasty of Egypt begun had begun and it, up this is what all the history tells us that that I've looked at it's not biblical that I what I've just told you but it seems that that those times uh, is when that happened and Egypt had some slaves called the Hebrews the Israelites and uh, let's read in Exodus chapter 1 And I want us to read, beginning in verse 6. Exodus 1, beginning in verse 6. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly, exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So in looking at that, the Egyptian pharaoh had decided, we don't want to cut any slack with these these. Hebrews because if we have another foreign army come in and invade they may just join them and they may win their independence and they may take over again and this time it might be for good so we're going to deal with them but we're going to deal with them harshly we're going to deal with them uh, it's going to be painful for them to stay to be here so from that reading right there, what we find out is some of that, uh, and that during this time, when it was hard for them, the Israelites were were fruitful and increased abundantly. And the more they were afflicted, yet they still continued to multiply. God was with them. It's the reason all this was happening for them. The the multiplication. And so Egypt was afraid of them. They were in dread of the children of Israel. And so they served, the, uh, the Hebrews served with rigor, harshness. They made their lives bitter with bondage. So that's what is going on with God's chosen people. And we know why they're in Egypt. 
Joseph actually saved them uh, from the famine and uh, they became slaves over that time with the, with the new dynasty came in. But I want us to look at a couple things. Um, look in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to, the, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from, the, from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. There's a couple of words in here I want us to think about from what we just read in those three, four verses right there. The word bondage in the Hebrew means service or ministering or service of worship or enforced labor, slavery. Enforced labor and slavery. They were there doing those things uh, for the Egyptians that they didn't really want to do. So they're uh, in bondage. There's nothing they can do about it. The other word I want us to look at is the word oppression. It's the state of being kept down by unjust use of force or authority. One of the more I read about this, I found uh, something which makes sense, but I just, I don't know that I'd really thought about it, is that this oppression very likely meant minimal survival rate rations. They were, they were, they could very well have been starving. Their life was hard. And God says, I've seen all that. I've heard their cries. Moses, I'm sending you to take them. <laughs> Moses was so reluctant. But um, it, he did. And so they, he gets them out of Egypt. You know the, the plagues. I don't want to go into all that. And they're out there for a little while, and they're at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's coming after them. And so they cry out. Let's look at Exodus chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of, the, out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. God never told them it was going to be easy, did he? Never, that word was never used. But here they are, just a short, short, short time out, and Pharaoh's coming after him. He wants them back. And it'd be better if we were just in Egypt and to die in this wilderness. So you, you see their mindset. What happens next is the Red Sea, and they cross over, and God has delivered his people and they see that in Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, 
So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. It got a little tough and they were wanting to go back into slavery. They got out. He delivered them. They saw it. They feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You think back looking at the ten plagues, why wouldn't they have believed the Lord anyway? They go on after the Red Sea and they eventually, not long after, come to Mount Sinai in which they got the law and the tabernacle. And so they leave Mount Sinai and in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, now the mixed multitude, multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. It's interesting when you think of that word oppression that we just mentioned a few moments ago where they were on minimal survival rations and now they say, we remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and the garlic. That was so good, wasn't it? That was so fun. They forget. They forgot how who got them out of that. They hated it while they were there. Who got them out, and who had saved them already in the sea from the sea of uh, uh, over the, going through the Red Sea, and kill the Egyptians at the meantime. So this mixed multitude that came out with them could have been some of the Hyksos, could have been some other foreigners, could have been some of the Egyptians even could have come out with them, and they complained and it got the children of Israel to complain. And so this is how this is going. That that slavery looked pretty good when they're in the desert. All they've got is this manna provided by the Lord. So he got them out of Egypt. He saved them at the Red Sea. Now he's providing food for them. But that food in Egypt sure did sure was good, wasn't it? We freely ate of the fish in Egypt. How fickle. So they go to, they go after a while, they leave there when the tabernacle's done and all that. In the desert, and they're in the desert, wandering in the desert, and they finally get to the threshold of Canaan. They're about to go into this land flowing with milk and honey, and they balk at the report from the spies. And so they are, in the desert for 40 years. And so Moses, and they complained, it seems, the whole time. 40 years. Just think of that. You have kept your people alive for 40 years. Not just this room full, but two to three million people alive for 40 years sustained them in a wilderness. And they've complained all this time. I still, that just does something to my mind. But they're at the threshold of going into the land of Canaan. And so Moses is telling them some things and re, uh, retelling them what 
the events were that happened to remind them. And then they're about to go in and he says this. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, 5, and 6, he said, Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord, the year of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in, in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. Just because we're going to go into this land and, and I'm going to take care of those foreign nations, those nations, don't, don't think it's because of your righteousness by which this is going to happen. Israel, don't think about it that way. In verse 6 or verse 5, Deuteronomy 9, 5, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the words which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. You know, you're, you're not right, is what he's saying. Your heart's not right. That's not, but it's not because you're good that you're going in, because you're not. But those nations are wicked too. They're both wicked. They're wicked. The time is right now. And also because of the promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why you're going to take this land. And in verse 6, Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess, because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember, they've been in the desert for, previously when we talked, they'd been in the desert for a little while, and they were already longing to go back to slavery. He said, you're a stiff-necked people. Every time I see that in this, in Deuteronomy, and in the Old Testament, I think of Stephen. He told them the same thing many years later, many, many years later. <clears throat> if they were stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, their heart still wasn't right. They do go possess the land and they drive out some of the inhabitants, not all of them. They become a nation and then after a while they want a king. They get kings. They're good for about 120 years, or at least they're united for about 120 years. Then they're, they're divided, and there's a kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and Israel lasts until 722, and they're taken captive by Assyria. 116 years later, Judah is taken captive by Babylonia. They would rather serve idols than God. That's the reason they're going into captivity. Second Kings 17, just read it. Read it and think. That's the why they're going into captivity because God did not, God was not their God. Idols were. Israel had no good kings. Judah did have some. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 9, when they were out of slavery, out of the captivity rather, Ezra says, For we were slaves. Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. But he extended mercy to us in the sight of the, of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. A city without a wall wasn't a city, wouldn't have been a good 
city. Didn't have anything to protect it. So we were slaves, but God didn't forget us. God didn't forget Israel when they were slaves, and God didn't forget Israel in Egypt, and God didn't forget them when they were in captive, captivity. What God did do is take care of them in, while they were slaves in the foreign country. But what I want to talk about today is we're slaves. We're slaves today. Every one of us are slaves. God allowed the captivity because Israel did not want to serve him. Slavery and oppression was God's punishment for his chosen people. They had come out of that. And they did not want to serve him. And so he sent them back into captivity. And Ezra called it slavery. Now they soon developed homes and maybe businesses and they lived. But it didn't start out that way. They went away, spread out all over the country, all over the world. Because they didn't want to serve God. And we're slaves today. We're slaves today by choice. We decide what kind of slavery we're in. We do. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, it says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Do you not know, let me read it again. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of one of the two, sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. We are slaves of one of the two. We are. No way around it. We can serve God and be slaves of righteousness. Or we choose not to serve God, and we're slaves of sin. That's, there are no options. Luke writes about serving two masters. You can't serve one and love the other. You'll hate the other. You serve them. You'll be loyal to one, but not both. You cannot be served uh, servant of both, a slave of both. So when we make the decision to obey someone, we become that person's slave. And Paul applies that principle to our spiritual life. We make the decision how we want to live. We make the decision whether we'll just live in that, just live here, just maybe not doing anything wrong in man's eyes but just not serving God, or we'll serve God. The concept of choice is seen in the expression, present yourselves. When he said, do do you not know in verse 16 of Romans 6, turn to Romans 6, by the way, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one servants whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. 
So we present ourselves. We give ourselves over, it will, if you will, to the life that we want to live. And it's a life of slavery. And it could be good or bad. But we're going to decide. Free will is seen in both sin and conversion from sin. It's there. We decide we're going to sin. We know better. I know better. We decide we're not going to sin. We decide we're going to serve the Lord. It's a conscious decision. In Romans 6 and verse 13, we'll, we're going to get to reading some in a few minutes from the Bible. In Romans 6 and verse 13, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. Instruments of unrighteousness to sin and instruments of righteousness to God. That word instruments is an implement or a tool, Vine says. Some of the other commentaries add, could be a weapon. My life, the the way I choose to live, could be a, a, a tool to help somebody to the Lord. Or it could be a tool to keep somebody from serving the Lord. Could be a weapon. We wield a, a weapon. My life, your life, is to is what kind of influence that we have. In Romans chapter five, verses twenty and twenty-one. Moreover, the law entered that the offense may abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin abounded. Plenty of sin in the world. Everybody sins. Romans 3.23. Everybody sins. Grace abounded more. Much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That God's grace can keep us in the righteous way. We make the decision. So... In the chapter break between chapter 5 and 6 is unfortunate. When he just got through talking about grace, so he says in verse in chapter Romans 6, verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. We don't continue in sin and serve the Lord. We're going to serve one of two masters. So let's read verses 1 through 4. How does you, and what we'll find out is how you become a slave of righteousness. That's what we're going to see in Romans 1, 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? 
Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He said, no, we're not going to, we're certainly not going to continue in sin so that grace can keep saving us all the more. Because it just doesn't make any sense. How, we, how couldn't we who died to sin live in sin longer? In verse 2. It's just the, the incongruity there is glaring. As many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Just like he died, we died. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. And what happened? Just as Christ was raised from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When we're raised in, from baptism, we walk in newness of life. We don't, the, 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 that old man of sin's gone. That old man of sin has been buried. He is dead. And so we don't live in sin any longer. The watery baptism, if you will, is the, the grave in which Jesus uh, was buried. We would dig a hole to bury someone in today. And you're raised to walk in newness of life when you're buried, after you're buried. Verses 5 and 6 says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So there's that slavery thing again. Being baptized into death and raised uh, to walk in newness of life. And he says, if we've been united together in the likeness of, if we if we've done that, Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Same as Christ rose, we rise. But it's not the same person that rises up. It's that new man. A new man, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That man of sin, he, he, he died. He died in the baptism that the body of sin, that old man and that body of sin might be done away. It's all over. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. That's that man who, that old man, that, that uh, body of sin, that slave of sin, it's over. Done away with. And you're raised to walk in newness of life again. Verses 7 and 8 of Romans 6. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. There's that man. Let me go back again. That man who was buried. He was crucified, if you will. That body of sin is done away. He's no longer a slave of sin. He who has been freed 
who has died has been freed from sin. That, that, old, that old man that died, he's been freed from sin. And if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. That that death that put us away from the things of the world made us alive to Christ, made us alive to God. Look at verses 9 through 11. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just to recap, you've been raised, that Christ having been raised from the dead doesn't die anymore. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death doesn't rule. That's what that word means. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. He died to take away that sin, to remove all that from being held against me. But the life that he now lives, he lives to God. So also, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. But alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Old man died, raised up, new man, slave of sin, freed from sin. All works at one time. Just like that. At baptism. Verse 13 again. And do not present your members as instruments of righteousness of unrighteousness to God uh, to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Sin doesn't rule. Sin doesn't have rule, dominion over you. So we present our members as instruments of righteousness. We do what God wants us to do so that he finds favor with us because we've changed our lives to conform to what he's looking for instead of what the world's looking for. Sin is not to reign over us. It's not the ruler in our lives anymore that we should obey all the lusts of this life. Look at verses 17 and 18. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When you look at verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There's the process again. Been somewhat redundant. 
Romans 6 is redundant. Saying the same thing over and over. But look at this. In Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul calls himself a bondservant. He is a servant. He is a slave. He's a slave of righteousness, but he's a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's one sent by Jesus Christ, by God. He's a servant. He's a slave. And not just him. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God, in all the will of God. So Epaphras, whom Paul knew, who went with Paul in places, he is a bondservant. He's a slave of Christ. One who is a slave in the sense is in the sense of becoming the property of an owner, the property of an owner. So the focus then is on belonging to God in Christ, that God owns us. Moreover, we're his family. We are heirs of according to the promises. We, we have uh, great things to expect. And becoming a bondservant of Christ and God is the only joyous outcome of this life. That's it. There is no other outcome that will be pleasant when this life is over. It's, it just will be terrible if we spend an eternity knowing that we had heaven within our grasp and we let it go. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul writes to Timothy again. He says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of change. But the word of God is not changed, chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's Paul, and he's in prison, and he's not getting out. As a matter of fact, he says in chapter 4, the time of my departure is at hand. He's about to be killed. It won't be long. He's in chains. He's, in effect, a servant again, a slave. He's in bondage, literally. But he said, the word of God is not changed. Chained. I said changed again. It's, the word of God is not chained. Even though he's chained up, the word of God's not. He is not going to be quiet about what God has done to save his soul. He, he's going to keep on telling everybody. It's that important that he wants everybody to know. Which we read in verse chapter 6 of Romans be buried with him by baptism, raised to walk in units of life. That's how we become slaves of righteousness and not slaves of sin any longer. So, if you will, take your songbook, turn to number 325, get ready, and Corey's going to lead that song in just a moment. 
But we're to be slaves of God. We are to obey God from the heart. Be baptized, wash the sins away, be a new person, no longer a slave of sin, but the other kind of slave, a slave of righteousness. If you need that to happen, or if you've done that in the past, you need the prayers of the saints, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing? I am resolved no longer.